someone the NSA once listed as the most dangerous hacker in America, sure don't look like much. He travels the world and scans the web to keep you up to date on the latest threats to the internet and to your cybersecurity. He brings you the latest on the fight against cyber terrorism, keeping you safe with the best cybersecurity information on the radio. It's Cybersecurity Today with John Bambanek. Good morning. You've turned into Cybersecurity Today Radio. I am your host, John Bambanek, broadcasting out of AM820 News in Tampa and AM1060 News out of Orlando. We've got a great show lineup for you today. A lot of big news in cybersecurity has taken place the last week. I know I've been busy. Uh, perhaps some of you have been, too, responding to uh, all the various things that have been going on with WannaCry uh, and some developments that we've had in the past seven days, and we will get right into it. I've... Uh, had on uh, reporters from uh, CyberScoop, which is uh, uh, a new online outlet for covering cybersecurity news, and uh, they're now uh, one of our new uh, digital partners. We'll be uh, sharing content and, and covering stuff uh, on cybersecurity more broadly. So uh, joining us is Greg Otto from CyberScoop, cyberscoop.com. Uh, he's the managing editor for that uh, outlet. How are you doing today, Greg? I'm doing well. Thanks for having me on, John. Let's dive right into it. Tell us a little bit about CyberScoop. What was kind of the genesis of creating that outlet? So CyberScoop is the newest outlet from Scoop News Group. Scoop News Group is a company based in Washington, D.C. that covers the intersection of government and technology. Uh, the company started around 2008 with the launch of FedScoop.com, and FedScoop really covers everything that goes on in federal IT. Then a few years later, we have launched StateScoop, which StateScoop covers state and local government, and EdScoop, which EdScoop covers the technology and education intersection. And throughout all of that, uh, we realized that a lot of our readers were just vastly interested in cybersecurity. So last year, we launched CyberScoop, which covers both public and private sector cybersecurity. And we are a staff of about four reporters, and we have covered everything from, you know, the uh, NSA equation group to the Dyne DDoS attack to uh, what has been going on this week. Uh, it, it's been a, a very busy uh, set of months in the cybersecurity world, and we've had a really great uh, launch pad to uh, introduce ourselves to the greater cybersecurity community. No, no, I think that's definitely true. I know, uh, you know, I, I've, uh, you know, given some information to some of your reporters. Uh, I was out to your office last week. So, um, you know, I think you, you guys produce a lot of great content. And as far as something new to cover, it's all the time there's something new, uh, new to talk about. If you talk to me, I don't know, this time last year, maybe a year and a half ago, and say, oh, by the way, you're going to have a couple of cases involving the presidential election, and by the way, you're going to be talking about it six months after the election uh, and on into France and, and Germany and U.K., I would have I not believed you. It's just, uh, it's just <laughs> kind, of a, kind of a fire hose when actually kind of the irony of it all was – uh, when somebody uh, suggested, hey, um, you know, put together a cybersecurity, uh, you know, show, I was like, well, I, okay, but uh, we're going to run out of content pretty quick. And, well, here we are, and I doubt we'll get to everything that happened in the past week here in this this hour show. 
Yeah, it, I mean, it's been absolutely crazy this week and looking back, you know, this past month and six weeks ago and three months ago, and it, it really has been a, a chaotic time. We are not bored by any means. No, no, it's, uh, you know, I think I was saying somebody else, you know, at this point I'm just working, you know, career cases, you know, every day instead of going 20 years working one big one that you talk about forever. It's... Uh, every day there's a new one. And, uh, you know, Wanna Cry, the big ransomware attack. Uh, maybe North Korea, maybe not. I'm sure we'll talk about that in a little bit. But, uh, you know, uh, is another one. And these NSA breaches, it's just, uh, it just doesn't stop. So it's good. Uh, I don't like being bored, you know. So that, <laughs> uh, I certain, certainly uh, have that going for me, at least in this career. So um, let's kind of go ahead and uh, jump into uh, kind of, you know, what do you think's happened the past week? You know, what what are the big stories? Well, I I mean, obviously the the one cry ransomware that has infected 150,000 computers, I think even more than that at this point in in 150 different mm-hmm. countries. I mean, just seeing how this entire like how this affects the entire uh, you know, enterprise of uh, the global internet, just seeing that we know now that these attackers, uh, whoever it is that might be responsible for it, you know, leveraged a one of these stolen NSA tools that was leaked a few mm-hmm. weeks ago to to spread this ransomware, um, and how that has really turned into an argument now within the U.S. on how the NSA or any intelligence community that does any type of hacking has to disclose mm-hmm. disclose their hacks to the private companies. I mean, Microsoft released a letter earlier this week where they really went at the NSA and said, you need to tell us when this sort of stuff happens so we can avoid you know, having a global meltdown when it comes to cybersecurity mm-hmm. on the internet. So it, it's just really sent everybody reeling, again, at a time when there's been enough stories that send everybody reeling when it comes to cybersecurity. No, no, I think that's definitely true. And I think, you know, I'm not all favorite, you know, I, I try to find amusement in it, but uh, I don't know if the NSA respond, but somebody responded. It's like, okay, Microsoft, if you want to yell at the NSA for hoarding exploits, you produced this patch in February, but you didn't give it to the Internet at large, or at least for the end of life systems. Uh, a lot of what was infected. Uh, I don't know if we have a good percentage, but but Microsoft was holding back until Friday uh, for for some of their patches. So, um, you know, there's certainly a lot of finger pointing going on, or uh, I guess like I I like to call it blame storming. You know, of who's really at fault. Uh, right. For some reason, we don't like blaming the criminals, uh, usually because we can't throw them in jail. Uh, but yeah, there's a <laughs> lot of tentacles to that story that. Uh, these are NSA tools that got stolen last year, middle of last year-ish, uh, I think, August, September. I forget exactly when they li- – well, that's when they announced they had stolen it. Anyway, right. When they stole it is another story. Um, uh, Department of Homeland Security sent out a very odd announcement in January saying, oh, by the way, you should do these defenses unconnected to the patch. And people are kind of scratching their heads, exactly what's that about? And Microsoft releases their patch to people who paid for it anyway. And then here we are today with, uh, and like you said, it was a big global outbreak. Every um, every few years, anyway, it seems like we have uh, you know one of these worms where uh, malicious data kind of self propagates out there. 
and it had a real, real devastating impact. And, and certainly I was all hands on deck from the professional side of things, but I can't imagine it was a quiet weekend for you guys either. No, and it really was, you know, we were reaching out to both public and private sector entities to figure out if they were affected at all. Uh, we actually were privy to a list of IP addresses that looked to have been affected by the ransomware's command and control, um, and a bunch of universities came mm-hmm, up mm-hmm. on that list, including uh, MIT, uh, the University of Washington, the University of Maine, and actually in a lot of these instances, we informed the colleges that yeah. they were infected with with uh, the WannaCry ransomware. Um, so it really, you know, caught everybody by surprise as this sort of, you know, rolled out over the weekend and into the latter stages of this week. Um, also, it, it affected state governments. There was mm-hmm. a infected system that we found in Cook County, Illinois, that um, they did, in fact, say that they were affected by it, that they found it on their machines. But in the cases of even some of the universities and Cook County, Illinois, it didn't seem to disrupt things to the point that we saw early when this first came about, when we saw what happened in the UK with hospitals and people being turned away from surgeries and and there were literally lives on the line. Uh, The US was was pretty pretty much spared any sort of real life consequences and in real life damage coming from this. No, I think that's definitely true. We're coming up on here. We need to take a quick break, but stay tuned. You're listening to Cybersecurity Today Radio with John Bamanek. We're going to be back with Greg Otto of CyberScoop here after the break, so stay tuned for more. Scan your computer, but don't scan the dial. Stay right here. John Bamanek will be right back. You're back with Bambanek on cybersecurity. Welcome back. You're listening to Cybersecurity Today Radio. I'm your host, John Bambanek. Uh, still with us, Greg Otto of CyberScoop, uh, cyberscoop.com, talking about the WannaCry outbreak of last week and this week. It's actually still not fully remediated. Uh, so I wanted to follow up, uh, you know, kind of uh, of what you were talking about, right? There wasn't a lot of life safety risks or impact in the United States, but uh, uh, very, uh, you know, very impactful impact to the National Health Service in the UK. They have a uh, more or less nationalized healthcare system. So I think I seem to recall it was you guys who reported that uh, they had dropped extended support running for XP, which had uh, a large impact of that. Is, is that what you saw as well? Yes, uh, uh, I did. That you know, the the healthcare sector did get hit pretty hard, and I know from talking to sources inside the Department of Health and Human Services that they were, uh, you know, all hands on deck trying to help the private sector mitigate any problems that they heard of. And I mean, and these are people that deal with, you know, their own enterprise inside the agency. So to have them sort of, you know, turn off their normal day jobs and to rush out and, you know, basically you know, have the support for medical devices is, you know, kind of stark. It kind of shows how much this affected uh, hospitals. 
early on on Friday, they, they, there was a response very high level. We've kind of somewhat downgraded our response, but I'm here uh, in Pittsburgh, and, and a lot of us who work on these investigations just happen to be in this town this week anyway. But I know at the UK, they're they're very energized at a high level, not just in law enforcement, but from their three-letter agency equivalents. Looking at this, they're they're quite upset about what happened, and what it means. Uh, which kind of brings us to, to the next point, right? There's been a lot of discussion about attribution. You know, who is, who is behind this? Uh, I know I've had some of my theories. I believe I've talked to, to Chris Bing uh, about some of that with you guys. And there's been a lot of chatter about that. You know, what are you hearing? Right. So Chris uh, wrote a story earlier this week that showed that the code underlying the WannaCry ransomware uh some of that code was shared or looked to have similarities to code that was written by a group of North Korean hackers that is known as the Lazarus Group. Now, the Lazarus Group is really known in the cybersecurity world for financial crimes. They have been tied to the hack a few months mm-hmm. ago where $81 million were sold from the global banking system known as SWIFT. Now, that code from the Lazarus Group being shared, as you know, John, that does not necessarily mean uh, attribution. That doesn't say, okay, the, this North Korean group did it. However, you know, there are experts uh, from Semantic and Kaspersky that we mm-hmm. talked to that just seem to say there are clues that, that point to the Lazarus Group mm-hmm. and, and that code being part of... Uh, what we saw with WannaCry. Now, there is a story, too, that we published on Friday that says that, you know, the Lazarus Group has been experimenting with ransomware mm-hmm. phishing emails. Mm-hmm. Um, so th- there, there's some smoke there when it comes to the attribution of where WannaCry originated from. However, I mean, there's still going to be lots of work to do, and I'm sure, John, that you're yeah, doing that work as well to, to you know, turn that smoke in, into fire and say, you know, these are the parties responsible for it. Yeah, no, I think that's right. And at, at best, I say right now, we have a very weak circumstantial case. That's kind of the best case. But I mean, some leads pan out, some some don't. You follow them all. And right now, that's the only evidence-based kind of theory we have. There's lots of rampant speculation. Oh, it could be Russia, it could be this. But no data to point to it. Um, and But that's not to say it's... Uh, North Korea either, right? We have a lot of work to do, and I think, you know, if nothing else, if it turns out uh, that it was them, it makes some makes some very interesting uh, geopolitical observations of how China reacts. Because, you know, we talk about NHS and we talk about uh, FedEx has been reported in some universities in Cook County uh, near where I live, uh, but some of the by by quantity, some of the biggest impacts were seen in Russia and more importantly, China, who is, for lack of probably a more precise term, you know, the biggest benefactor of North Korea. So it'll be certainly interesting to see how they react to all of this. Yes, absolutely. I mean, and we've written in the past before that China and North Korea have this real tenuous relationship mm-hmm. when it comes to uh, nation-state-sponsored hacking. Uh, We know that North Korea often sends their intelligence apparatus into northern China to, to, you know, use the infrastructure that China has in order to conduct the hacking that it does. So if what North Korea, if North Korea is responsible for this and it has somehow affected China, I mean, that's, 
that, that's a very touchy subject, and it, it, it's going to create you know a lot of problems for how those two countries operate. It's always kind of particularly interesting how those two interact. I think they're happy when North Korea causes us headache. They're not particularly happy when it causes China headache, and, and there's kind of a yeah, tenuous, I guess, is the best word, right? You know, it's kind of a, an interesting relationship there. And it'll be interesting to see if it is them, how that fallout takes place and what the, the underlying statecraft is is uh, that takes place. So changing gears for a little bit, uh, you know, we've got a couple minutes left before we need to take a break. Uh, but obviously there have been some developments in the ongoing uh, election related hacking of last year uh, with a special prosecutor uh, now being assigned in Robert Mueller, uh, a former director of the FBI himself, uh, who uh, will be completing that investigation on behalf of the Department of Justice. So, uh, you know, what can you tell us about that story and, and some of the developments there? Well, I mean, this is the story that's pretty much gripped Washington. It seems not an hour goes by without there being some new development when it comes down to the investigation here. Um, interesting, interestingly enough, and this is what what really tickles my fancy when it comes to this story, is Robert Mueller, before being appointed to this, was actually um, on retainer with Booz Allen Hamilton doing an internal review of the Harold Martin case. Uh, mm-hmm. For those that are not yeah. familiar, Harold, Harold Martin was the NSA contractor arrested with just terabytes of data uh, stored at his house that he took uh, when he was working for Booz Allen. And it's been rumored that a lot of the data that he had were these tools that were uh, put out on the Internet by mm-hmm. the shadow brokers. So it, it, it's all seemingly coming full circle here that um, all, all, of this, all of this hacking stuff is, is interconnected. Um, I, you know, I, I think that with what we've seen when it comes to appointing the, the special counsel is that, again, this is tenuous, it, mm-hmm. it, it's dark, but it, it, it keeps coming out. And as to whether or not Mueller is going to help at all, I mean, it, it, it's all going to determine, or it's all going to be determined by whether or not everybody stays independent. I mean, mm-hmm. we've seen from the president that, you know, he has already reached out to Mike Flynn since he has fired Mike Flynn and wants to rectify the situation. And we've seen from Jeff, Jeff Sessions that he was going to recuse himself from this. But when it comes to the firing of James Comey, he stuck his nose in and offered help in getting rid of Comey. So it's, it is really, really just a mess when it comes to this investigation. Uh, coming to the end of our segment here, uh, so I'd like to thank you, Greg, for being on. It's Greg Otto, uh, Managing Editor of CyberScoop. You can see them on cyberscoop.com. You're listening to Cybersecurity Today Radio with John Bamanek. We'll be right back. Stay tuned for more from Bamanek on Cybersecurity. Bambinick's back with the latest on cybersecurity. Welcome back. You're listening to Cybersecurity Today Radio. I am your host, John Bambinick. So, you know, prior to this, talking a lot about WannaCry, the ransomware attack that happened uh, this past week, uh, and some developments in terms of the uh, Russia investigation from the election-related stuff from last year. 
uh, had on Greg Otto of CyberScoop, cyberscoop.com, uh, our new digital partner. So definitely check them out. Uh, we'll be sharing content with each other. So they, they do a lot of great, uh, great coverage. So certainly uh, keep your eye out on for them for news uh, about cybersecurity and how it affects government policy. Got a question on cybersecurity? Ask Bambanek. Really? You sure about that? Now we're going into our social media segment where we take your questions, answer what you want to know about cybersecurity, privacy, how to protect yourself, your family, your business. So let's go ahead and get right into it. If you want to ask us questions, as always, you can connect to us at our website, cybersecuritytodayradio.com, on Facebook at facebook.com slash cybersecradio, on Twitter at cybersecradio, and my personal Twitter account at Bambanek. You can reach us at email at johnbambanekradio at gmail.com, J-O-H-N-B-A-M-B-E-N-E-K, radio at gmail.com. So going right into it. Uh, Sam asked, I am the owner of a small company I've heard about, WannaCry Ransomware. What steps do I need to take to protect myself? The ransomware itself, right, is is malware, antivirus, some endpoint tools will protect against that. What we really, uh, a lot of attention was uh, talked about how it spread and how it got on computers for what we call a worm, where basically somebody reaches out over the Internet, uses a remote exploit to execute code on a machine without any authentication or, or control. Uh, and that's what really led to this spread uh, of malware. So what we saw is a lot of unpatched or unsupported operating systems were out there uh, so that when this exploit reached out, tried to communicate with them, they were able to say, hey, download this ransomware and execute, uh, and part of that would then use those to scan the internet to also execute. In March, if you had a supported operating system like Windows 10, your machine got a patch, you didn't, uh, as long as you updated, which should be automatic, you would have been fine. For older machines, particularly those that aren't being supported by Microsoft anymore, if you paid for support, then you would get a patch. If you didn't pay for support, then you wouldn't uh, until late Friday when Microsoft just gave it to everybody because of the scope of, of, the, uh, of the attack. So the important thing to realize is that really always update your machine, always apply those patches. It's annoying, but you know when Microsoft says we're not going to support Windows XP anymore, not going to support Windows 7 anymore, move to the latest operating system. Particularly with Windows 10, the upgrade was free. Microsoft really has done a lot of great things with Windows 10 to make it a harder target. There are some privacy implications we can talk about and some of the things that it collects. Uh, so there may be some settings you want to adjust there. But it's much harder to get into Windows 10. So really you want to move to that. Move to more modern operating systems as you can uh, because a lot of the commodity stuff that happens out there is really relying on uh, vulnerable software that you have on your machine. And not just Windows and Microsoft, uh, but also Java and Adobe, what other applications you might use, Quicken, uh, you name it. But making sure all of that stays updated so that you're protected against the, um, the most well-known security vulnerabilities. That's the most important thing you can do. Uh, the second part of it is always be wary of, of going through attachments and email, clicking on things. Uh, a lot of things purport to be fake invoices or fake FedEx delivery stuff. You click on it. It's not really a PDF. It's a zip file with some scripting or, or whatever. 
really malware gets on your machine one of two ways it's it's vulnerabilities uh, based on websites you may be tricked to going to or malicious attachments and email and phishing so always keep track of those but really you know modern operating systems get to windows 10 if you can uh, and and apply those patches that will really really help you out so i would encourage everybody to do that our next question phil asked you know, I got this Amazon Alexa for my 50th birthday. Uh, you know, should I be concerned about it, what it can do? Uh, actually, I have a lot of great information about this. Uh, I've mentioned before, I teach at the University of Illinois in computer science. I have a lot of independent project work I assign students to as part of that, just to learn new things because, uh, you know, by the time I could put it into the course curriculum, it's probably stale. I had one of my students specifically look at the Amazon Alexa, see if he can get into it. Uh, and it's, it's a pretty hard target. Right. Um, you know, you don't know if there's a vulnerability until somebody discovers something. But it looks like the Alexa, they did a lot of things right in terms of people being able to get into it. Now, for all of these devices, whether it's uh, an Alexa or these other smart devices, a treadmill, fridge, whatever, uh, always make sure they're behind a router or an access point so they're not directly connected to the Internet. That way nobody can reach out to the Internet and talk to it. There is the interesting aspect of, an, uh, of the Alexa. Uh, or I should say the Amazon Echo, right? Alexa's the name. Excuse me, I have one in my office. Is that uh, the problem is when you have Alexa as a keyword, uh, if you're playing news, this happened about a month ago. Somebody was on, I don't know, one of the cable news shows and went through, hey, Alexa, order this book. And then anybody who had an Echo near uh, that TV heard it, it picked it up and then, uh, and then ordered things. So those are the kind of things you have to worry about most with an Amazon Echo is, is as far as I'm concerned uh, that that have been seen so far. Uh, there may be more. Uh, certainly pay attention to the news if you see it. But it's making sure that uh, nothing can simply just repeat something off a TV or whatever and start ordering things. Uh, with the Echo, there's this the equivalent of Amazon one-click ordering. You could say, hey, Alexa, order me a box of sausage, and it, it, it might do that uh, automatically if you have credit card stuff in there. Uh, I don't have mine configured that way. I just don't like the concept of, of somebody being able to say something and then put charges on my credit card. Uh, there isn't really voice recognition in the sense that, hey, this is my Alexa nobody else should be able to talk to it so uh, certainly be wary of that I, I don't like the one the one click or i guess one speak purchasing aspect of it but everything else like i said it looks like uh, it's a relatively secure device now there are a lot of vulnerable other devices out there uh, that you should be wary of but always keep them you know not directly connected to the internet behind an access point uh, so that people in pick out any country in the world can't reach out and talk to it next question sarah asks I get hundreds of emails a day, uh, you know, about hackers and spam and all this stuff trying to get into uh, either sell me things or get into uh, my privacy uh, onto my computer, into my accounts, and it's getting harder to block it. What can I do to, to, to protect myself? How can you detect if somebody is trying to defraud you? What I have been uh, uh, talking to people about lately is, right, you know, uh, when it comes to computer security, we like naming specific things, right? There's the WannaCry ransomware where we describe in detail what one thing of bad is. The reality is, is, is really there's a very finite number of good or true things that you can prove, and then it's kind of an infinite number of ways you can deceive, right? The truth is, is, is really a thing. The deception is, could be anything that your, your mind can create. So when you're looking at 
phishing emails or emails saying you know, purporting from your bank account right always mouse over see where the link points to so i uh, from my bank i got a, a purported email from them hey we got to secure a document whatever it's got their logo on it and everything you know my first thing is okay i'm going to right click see where that points me off to and it wasn't to the bank it was to some random string of of whatever uh, it's not impossible, but it's pretty hard to get, you know, uh, you know, a domain that looks a lot like Citibank.com. Uh, it's usually, you know, some long string of something dot ru or dot whatever. So take a look at those URLs. But more importantly, somebody wants from a bank account or something confidential, always go more directly to that website uh, instead. You know, if you're getting an email from, you know, I don't know, Discover, Citibank, uh, Mastercard, whatever, right? And you've got an account with them. Just go to your web browser and log into it instead of uh, letting somebody who could spoof an email be part of that chain of communication. Just go directly, uh, and then you'll be able to access the information and be relatively safe uh, safe uh, from deception and phishing. But really, it's like looking for deception, right? Some linguistical clues, some odd language combinations, anything that might tip you off that, hey, this is not on the level know how the people you communicate with communicate with, you know, how the messages look and feel, and then any deviations from that be wary of. You're listening to Cybersecurity Today Radio. Stay tuned for more. You're listening to John Bambinick, the most trusted name in cybersecurity. Bambinick's back with the latest on cybersecurity. Welcome back. You're listening to Cybersecurity Today Radio. I am your host, John Bambanek. So, uh, took a lot of your questions, asked, you know, about how to protect you and your privacy. But to segue a little bit, right, to focus now simply on privacy, we talked a little bit about WannaCry, global outbreak of ransomware, uh, some of the ongoing uh, Russia-related investigations from the election, uh, and some of your questions. But now to move on explicitly to privacy. And, you know, as Many of you may know there's a lot of things out there that's collecting information about you, uh, a lot of things that are posted online. As a little bit of an aside, uh, interestingly enough, as it relates to the WannaCry outbreak, many of my fellow researchers and investigators take pains that their identity is not disclosed, it's not public, so that there can be no retaliation or anything like that. Uh, you saw this last week there was a 22-year-old in, in the United Kingdom who act, uh, who registered a kill switch domain that helped mitigate the spread of WannaCry and got a lot of fame and notoriety. Uh, the British press eventually figured out who he was, published his picture, uh, camped out outside of his house, uh, paparazzi style. So it was a very kind of... Uh, rough, <laughs> rough few days for him. Uh, I, you know, I know him. You know, I've met him various, uh, various places uh, around the world. I'll probably see him again in a couple of weeks when I'm in London. But there's a lot of people who are very privacy conscious, but don't really have a lot of information and tools to know. Right? How can I best protect my privacy? So I'd say, you know, we have Facebook, we have Twitter, we have a lot of these public. Uh, services that are free. We put information about ourselves. 
you know, who we're friends with, our spouse, our kids, what sports team, music, movies we like, uh, sexual orientation, you know, marital status, on and on. We willingly fill this stuff out. I know we talked on a previous show. There's a lot of these quizzes. You feel, oh, you're 83% like uh, Kim Kardashian. Uh, when you uh, sign up for those quizzes, those applications ask for all of your information. When it comes to privacy, the biggest thing that you can do to protect your privacy is limit what you put online. Uh, don't If you don't want the world to see it, probably putting it into an Internet website is not your best choice. Um, you know, that said, right, there's a lot of debate going on. I'm part of some international uh, policymaking groups struggling with privacy uh, of, various, uh, of various sorts. So in this past week, there's some interesting uh, activity regarding Facebook uh, uh, from French and Dutch regulators. Namely, uh, Facebook uh, is a little bit more difficult to see how they're using their in your information, where it's stored, how, how it's being used. Uh, in essence, I mean, part of their terms of service is that they can collect information about you. But it's not just what you put on Facebook. If you're logged in through a web browser, it can track what websites you go to and then give you targeted advertising. Uh, you know, if you have it on your phone, it can keep some measure of information outside of what you just merely do on Facebook. Now, in the European Union, they're much more privacy uh, conscious as far as regulation than we are, uh, and they have uh, some enhanced privacy regulations coming into force, uh, I believe, next year. Uh, but there's been a lot of back and forth, and they were uh, Facebook was fined by French regulators uh, for privacy. They'd been working with them, saying, hey, you need to make this easier for people to opt out, what information you're collecting, so on and so forth. Uh, According to the French regulators, they didn't uh, feel that Facebook's re response and their activity was what they wanted, so issued them a fine. Uh, Dutch regulators, kind of a similar situation there. But really, when it comes down to Facebook and Twitter, there's a lot of privacy concerns there. They do some things okay, right? There's a lot of conversation and discussion, right, about what intelligence agencies can see and encryption backdoors and the ability to get information on you. The reality is a lot of these free services and consumer data aggregators generally collect tons of information about you, and you're willingly giving it to them, right? Uh, I tend not to be particularly supportive of the European Union-style data protection. Uh, there's some things that get right, but, I mean, at a certain point, you're signing on to Facebook. There's terms of service. They tell you that they're going to use their information and monetize it. When it comes to these issues, when it comes to privacy especially, right, uh, I think the best approach, right, if you care about privacy, nobody is going to protect your privacy except you. And if you don't want information about yourself to be known, don't necessarily put it online or be wary of that because it doesn't, it's not just necessarily uh, the legitimate and permissive uses of, of Facebook data or whatever. You know, there's a lot of websites that may have information of a confidential nature that uh, then they get hacked and they get breached, right? Uh, as an example, Adult Friend Finder and some similar uh, websites, Ashley Madison, uh, that are, uh, to put it mildly, hookup sites. So as part of this, you put in a bunch of profile that have some pretty, you know, personal preferences that what you're interested in, you know, and it's part of that service. You pay by credit card, yada, yada, yada. 
that entire database got breached and now it's online. So it's not just, you know, how Ashley Madison used it. Now the entire Internet has access to it and can use that information uh, however they see fit or criminals can use it. Um, and they did actually. There's there's a lot of cybersecurity attacks around the Ashley Madison and Adult Friend Finder breaches, particularly around uh, extortion. So, anything you put on on a website, even if that website person's doing the right thing, protecting your information, it still may get out into the public domain. So there are a lot of things you need to consider, and we'll go over that in just one second. When it comes to things that you put online, right, and it's it's really a matter of personal preference. Uh, how I define privacy is controlling what others can find out about you. Some things are inherently public, right? Property records are inherently public. There's no hiding uh, the title history of your house. Uh, many jurisdictions in the United States, property tax records are public. Uh, criminal records, unless expunged, are public and lawsuits and that kind of thing. If you don't want people to know your address, you know, by going online, you know, when you order stuff, have it shipped to your office if you're buying things off of Amazon or whatever. That way they may have your work address, but it could be a big company, so who cares? Uh, if you're concerned about your children's privacy, you know, avoid putting pictures of them online. Uh, what is concerning to me is all of our smartphones now have GPS in them. It's almost kind of by default location services or whatever Android uh, calls it is on. So your GPS is always looking, and depending on how you have things set, it will embed your location into, uh, into whatever you're doing. So for a long time, people would take selfies, do whatever. The GPS coordinates were embedded in the picture. And in fact, uh, a couple years ago, there was somebody wanted in Belize for connection uh, or for questioning in a murder investigation. And I was able to pinpoint exactly what restaurant he was staying in Guatemala because his GPS coordinates were included in a picture that they posted online. So if you don't like that, my general practice is, is on my phone. I only turn on GPS, really, when I'm ordering an Uber. Uh, you know, location service is kind of important for that, so the car knows where to go, so on and so forth. But as soon as I'm in the, uh, in the car, driving to wherever, I turn location services off again. That's about the only thing I really use it for is, is, <laughs> is getting a ride. Um, but a lot of things will use it. Facebook, you know, if, if you give it permission, will track everything where you've been, use that to sell you stuff, uh, so, you know. Uh, Twitter will use it, any number of these things. But if you never turn it on, prohibit using location in some of these things. You know, it's very useful uh, for, for protecting your privacy. And bear in mind, right, you know, it's not just these services. If you've got a public Twitter account, you're posting, your location's embedded in it, you know, say you're a single mom. I, I know that you live in Tampa, and I see you have a Twitter post geotagged in Arizona. I know nobody's at home, and which means I could break into your house and steal your stuff. Or if it's an ex-boyfriend, an ex-girlfriend, a stalking kind of situation, right? If you're posting your location, now I can follow where you are and not have to, to tail you, right? So, And there's a lot of applications like that specifically designed for that. I believe I talked about that a couple weeks ago in uh, Stalkerware. So the biggest important thing, right, when it comes to Facebook and Twitter, right, be mindful that whatever you post is not only public, but it is going to exist 
you know, in perpetuity. It may be forwarded uh, and sent uh, to any number of people. And this includes even things like text messages. You know, there's a lot of people taking intimate pictures of themselves, sending to someone, uh, someone else, a boyfriend or girlfriend. Uh, apparently it's a thing in high school now. But you have no idea where these things get forwarded after that. You have no control over it. So, so that brings us at the end of our show. Again, you know, no one's going to protect your privacy like you, so be mindful of what these applications are doing and what you're putting online about yourself. If you have more questions, want to connect, cybersecuritytodayradio.com at facebook.com slash cybersecradio and on Twitter at cybersecradio. Coming at you from AM820 News in Tampa and AM1060 News in Orlando. Stay tuned next week. We'll have more good cybersecurity news for you. You've been listening to Cybersecurity Today Radio with your host, John Bambadek. Enjoy the rest of your weekend.